That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BX, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. Whatever you're passionate about, do it. And take care of yourself while you're doing it, but don't let anyone limit you. No, if even if you're a third year associate and you've got this desire to start a business, start the business. And you'll figure out how to make it work, but but um but but live your life from that place of abundance and give yourself the freedom to live out all of the potential that you have. And I know that being the bo- being the CEO at Chani makes me a better CEO at Free From and vice versa. And being a mom now makes me better at all of it and yes. vice versa. And so I, don't deprive yourself in that way. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Sonia Passy, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Sonia, how are you doing? Hi, Merle. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited. I've wanted to do this interview for a while now. Likewise. Thank you for being so patient while I had a baby. Yeah. Um, that's uh, a good excuse, believe me. <laughs> um, so wanted to give our listeners a little background on you. Um, I don't go into long uh, descriptions, but because I like to kind of give you an opportunity to do that yourself. But I will tell everybody that um, Sonia is the founder and CEO of Free From. She's also the co-founder and CEO of Chani. Um, She was an associate at Morgan Stanley uh, as an investment banker for a short stint after graduating from from law school. Uh, During law school at at, uh, Berkeley, which we both are alumni of, by the way. Um, you fa- she founded the Family Violence a- Appellate Project. Um, Sonia attended Cambridge for her BS and her master's in philosophy, then went on to UC Berkeley School of Law, it, uh, apparently uh, ditched us for a year and went to Harvard <laughs> Law. Mm-hmm. I, I can't be mad at you for that. Um, what, what did I what did I miss, Sonia? You didn't miss anything. That was that was pretty comprehensive. Okay. And and you went to Cambridge. You were also the head girl at your uh high school, your um boarding school. <laughs> so does that mean that you grew up and you said you're from the UK and you grew up in the UK? It does. I didn't go to a boarding school, but I was oh. the head girl, head girl of my school, which I guess we call class president here. But you really, you really went back into the archives, Merle. Oh yeah, and that little tidbit. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love that stuff. <laughs> what What was that like? I mean, was that so? Tell Tell us a little bit before we get started on your career. Tell us your story. You know, who are you? Where are you from? 
who has inspired you? Um, was it teachers? Was it family? Did you have to do it yourself? You know, give us give us an idea of your journey. Yeah, I grew up in the UK. I was born and raised in Manchester, England. I didn't actually move to this country until I went to law school. So when I was 22. Okay. I, I, there were two kind of pivotal moments for me in my teenage years. The first was we did a lot of fundraising at our school for, you know, uh, local charities. And I loved it. And every mm -hmm. year, I took it upon myself to, to plan my classes fundraising event. And um, they were always very, very successful. And we would raise a ton of money. And um, it kind of became the thing each year, like what was, what was our class gonna do as our big fundraiser? Because it raised so much money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like oftentimes classes would do a cake sale and you know raise a couple hundred dollars and we were raising like thousands wow and i saw an, a friend from high school a few years ago and i had forgotten this part of my journey but she was able to witness for me and say you know back then what you were doing was you were just kind of building the skills that you were going to need for this part of your life interesting and then when I was a teenager, I very much thought that I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. At the time, Tony Blair was the prime minister of England. His wife, Cherie Blair, was a human rights lawyer. And it was the first time in my life that I had seen a, um, a prime minister's wife who was, quite frankly, much smarter and more accomplished than the prime minister. Wow. And so it was inspiring as a young woman to see a, um, a woman with, with that much intellect and leadership really having great impact on a global, a global stage. And so, you know, as you do when you're that age, you, you kind of model yourself off the people that you see. And I, was, I want to be a human rights lawyer. Wow. And so in my efforts to kind of learn more about what that meant, I started an Amnesty International group at my high school that year. I was 16. Wow. And, you know, when you start a group like that, you, they, the Amnesty sends you all of the information and the materials and you do activism around it. And their global campaign that year was violence against women. Got it. And, you know, I'm reading the materials and you know, the first bullet point says um, one in three women globally will experience gender-based violence. And I just remember, you know, I was a keen and eager 16-year-old. I read the paper every day. I watched the news every day. And I remember being so flabbergasted that I wasn't hearing about this as breaking news every single day. One in three women. It's like That is a global crisis. How am I reading and learning about this for the very first time in a pamphlet that I had to sign away for, you know, like send away for? Right. And I had grown up witnessing and experiencing and, and being proximate to a lot of different kinds of abuse. Mm -hmm. 
and I didn't have words for it and I didn't nobody talked about it and yet I understood like it was in me like an, an understanding or, or, or a feeling like this was my calling and my passion was there and in that moment it kind of crystallized and it was like this is what I am going to spend my life working on wow that's amazing and so you're, I, you're 16 yeah Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I just feel so fortunate that I had, I, I figured out that early in my life what it was that I wanted to do. And so I started by hosting awareness weeks at my high school on, on intimate partner violence. And then when I went to college and I went to Cambridge, I started a group that was educating campus students and local high school students about intimate partner violence and dating violence. And then by that point, I knew that this was the work that I wanted to do in the world. I had no idea what that would look like, but I was introduced to this as a human rights problem. And so I felt strongly like going to law school was going to give me uh, tools and understanding and a framework within which to address this, be it through policy or law or strategy. And so I chose to go to Berkeley Law because it has one of the best, if not the best, domestic violence law programs in mm -hmm. the U.S., certainly, and I think in the world. And my whole personal statement for law school was about ending violence against women. And it was only in law school when I started my first nonprofit that you mentioned earlier, the Family Violence Appellate Project, that I really kind of was able to connect what I'm passionate about with what I'm good at and kind of launch me into this trajectory that has become my career. But to go back years to your initial question of who inspired me. Yes. It was the elders in my life. It was my teachers. It was, um, I had a, a person in my life who was just, she was essentially my godmother her name is Bridie. She is a six foot Scottish woman. <laughs> and she taught me at a very, very young age what community was and how you show up as a neighbor and a friend and a community member and how kindness, what kindness looked like. And my grandparents, um, my maternal grandparents were both... Um, were both so involved in their community and always figuring out how to give what they had. Mm -hmm. And so these were my models. These were my models. And these were the people that affirmed in me my desire to uh, live a life of service. Amazing. And so how, how did your family and your community feel about you leaving to go to Berkeley um, for law school? You know, my mom is brilliant. She is wicked smart. And she was born and raised in India and was 
grew up in a time when her future was as a mother. She was married. She had an arranged marriage at the age of 19 to my father. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so she never got to live out that part of her life. And I feel that I don't know what it's like for you, Merle, but I feel it very much for women of my generation is a lot of what we are living out is the unlived lives of our of our mothers and our grandmothers. Yeah. And so I think for my mom, she so wanted and encouraged uh, that for me. Because she, she, she had wanted it herself. You know, right. my, my, my mother would, would never, all she wanted was for me to have the very best education that I could. And I remember when I first said to my parents that I wanted to go to law school in the U.S., my dad's immediate reaction was to say no. Yeah. <laughs> and my mom's immediate reaction to my dad was to say, if you don't say yes to this, I will sell my engagement ring and use that money to send her. Wow. And um, she so fiercely, I think almost on an unconscious level sometimes, she so fiercely understood that my freedom depended on my financial security and my financial security depended on my education. Yes. Yeah. And we're from different generations. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm much older than you, but I I can really relate to that story. I, I, I had something kind of similar when I was, I grew up in Compton and it had gotten to a point where it was pretty bad. And my, my, mother really wanted me out of Compton. And I had an opportunity to go to USC early when I was 16 and uh, on this special program. And my father said no. Mm -hmm. Um, And my mother said, and my mother would never have like been that bold with my father. I mean, there's a lot we can talk about, about what mm-hmm. you're doing, right? In mm-hmm. terms of financial uh, insecurity and financial abuse and all that kind of stuff. But um, she just said to me, you're going, we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. I'll deal with it. I'll take the consequences. Yeah. Um and so, you know, that, those, those kind of, you know, so yes, um, I can, I can totally uh, relate to that experience mm-hmm. and the fact that, that your mother, that our mothers uh, yeah. wanted better for us for, than what they had. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so you go to, you go to Berkeley, you go to law school, you do found, you know, you, you so now it makes sense why you, why you chose Berkeley and, mm-hmm. and the fact that you uh, founded the Family Violence Appellate Project. All that makes sense to me. What, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to understand is why you went to Morgan Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes people think that free from was the deviation from investment banking. And, and I say, actually, investment banking was the deviation from 
um, a long commitment to gender-based violence for two reasons. The first was I'm not a citizen of the US, so I didn't have the ability to come out of law school and do this work full-time. You know, doing this work full-time looked like either starting my own nonprofit or going to work at a nonprofit. I needed a big corporation that was going to sponsor my visa. Okay. What I knew very clearly was I did not want to be a lawyer. And I did not want to, I, I wanted to innovate in the space of gender-based violence. And I um, wanted to, I was passionate about business. I was passionate about innovation. I was passionate about startups and um, disrupting the space and, and transforming the space. And I felt like what I saw of corporate law in my internships, my summer internships was using kind of almost like the reverse skills. <laughs> and so I knew I didn't want to do that. I knew I had to, I had to get a job at a big corporation. Mm -hmm. And what I had learned through the process of starting the Family Violence Appellate Project was running a nonprofit is running a business. Yeah. You know, on a structural level, you need to know you accounting, you need to know business strategy, you need to know audits and budgets and all the rest of it. And, you know, the first couple of years that you will spend in finance as a junior is basically just like a crash course in finance and accounting. And that felt like valuable skills that I did not have. You know, I was a history major, an undergrad, and then a law student. So I didn't have any of that in my toolbox. And I knew that that was, that was skill. Those were skills that I wanted and needed. And um, that was a great opportunity to do that. So I went to work at Morgan Stanley for two years. Um, we learned exactly all of that and uh, met my now wife. Mm -hmm. fell madly in love with her and the day after she's an American citizen the day after we got married I gave my notice at work and filed my green card paperwork gave my notice at work and um, then began you know looking to the work that it was that I really wanted to do for the rest of my life that's amazing how it all fell in place it, it, I know. That that um, reminds me of a question that I that came up when you were talking about your mom. Is would it have even been possible that uh, an arranged marriage was something that they wanted would have wanted for you? Oh, it was what they wanted for me. <laughs> really, even your mother. Even my mother. You know, so, I think it's really hard, and I wonder what your experience with you or what your mom's experience was. As when, when you are the woman of the generation that is not free, mm -hmm. I think you hold the duality and the complexity of that. There was a part of my mother that wanted freedom for me. And I'm, I'm not also saying that you can't have an arranged marriage and be free, but she wanted total freedom for me. Mm -hmm. And there was a part of my mother that 
was wedded to the tradition that she lived within. Yes. And if if an arranged marriage wasn't for me, then what did it say about her life? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom, my parents did not, do not have um, the language of self-reflection and healing and, you know, therapy is not something that is on the table. So it's hard to hold both. Right. And so I was the first girl in my family, in my, even in my, you know, on my uh, um, father's side, I was the first girl of all of the, of the brothers and uh, in the family. And so I was kind of just uncharted territory for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And then you married a woman. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How, how and so that go over? <laughs> they, they, it, not well, you know, like it was a, it's a, it's not something that, that my family has ever been able to recover from mm. my immediate family and ultimately to their loss. And it's to my loss too, but, you know, I know now as a parent that any way in which I reject my daughter, it will hurt my daughter, but it will actually break my soul. Right. And that is something that I've really come to understand. And, you know, elders in my life would always say to me, you know, I I really feel for your parents because they're hurting themselves more than they're hurting you. And I'd be like, well, that's cute because I'm pretty yeah. hurt, you know? Right. <laughs> I'm pretty right. hurt, but please, please feel sorry for my parents right now. Um, but when my daughter was born, I really understood what they were saying. I really understood that the cap- as while I have the capacity to hurt my daughter, and I no doubt will and n- hopefully will, will work through that with her in a very different way, but um, it's me that, it's me that I hurt in that moment. She is so protected and it is me that I would hurt. And it's, uh, it's a level of maturity in my own healing that I don't think I ever couldn't have, could have got to were I not a parent at this point in my life. Well, I'll tell you, I I am a, a, a grandparent. My daughter and son-in-law had uh, identical. Thank you. Had identical twin boys um, oh, two two God. months into the lockdown and the pandemic. Um, and you know, they they tell you that being a grandparent is something that you is so special and you can't really understand it until you do it and it's true it's just a different level of love and you know just wanting to I I I can't even explain it but the idea um, of not experiencing that uh, you know if you know if your your parents are not able to experience it because of some rift is yeah. you know you're talking about a loss that that yeah. is a tremendous loss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I I totally agree. And um, 
it's it's kind of all wrapped up in I think um, that uh, complex duality of like these are this is what was available to me and and this what what is available to you is so outside of my experience right you know and it the, the same will happen for my daughter and my the the work that i have to do on myself as a parent is to always be growing yes. to always be separating my stuff from you know my relationship with my daughter and to always be growing so that i'm not stuck in the past as life well, the, continues. The thing that I learned, you know, when my daughter was growing up and was that it's not about me, you know, it's no longer about me. This is, you yeah. know, this is her life. They're her choices. It's hard, you know, yeah. especially, you know, if you've been, uh, if you've been, you know, a control person like I've been or, or yeah. have, have, you know, some trauma based stuff going on, you know, yeah. it's like, it's really hard, but that has always been my mantra. It's not about me. It's not yeah. about me. So let's talk about um, what you're doing. Let's talk about free from mm -hmm. um, and the connection between physical safety and financial security. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so free from is a national nonprofit organization uh, working at the intersection of gender-based violence and financial security. So we know one in three women, one in two trans folks in the U.S. will experience gender-based violence in their lifetime. Now, when I say gender-based violence, I'm talking about intimate partner violence, sexual assault, sex trafficking. And we know 50% of all sexual assaults take place within the context of intimate partner violence. So it's really hard to separate out these different forms of gender-based violence. But what we know is that the number one obstacle to safety for survivors is financial insecurity. Yeah. And that is for two reasons. The first is experiencing gender-based violence is incredibly expensive. The CDC estimates that it will cost a female survivor uh, $104,000. And that's everything from medical bills to lost wages to property damage to uh, accumulated debt in your name that you are unaware of to, uh, you know, long-term um, physical disability as a result of the harm. The, co the legal bills, the, the costs really add up very quickly. And quite frankly, I think $104,000 is an underestimate. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, 99% of survivors experience economic abuse as part of the harm. Mm -hmm. And that can look like anything from not being allowed to work, having to hand over your paycheck, having credit cards and debt in your name that you are not aware of, not having access to your own bank account, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it makes sense. You know, we've already talked about it in the context of this conversation. 
economic abuse is so normalized in our society. You know, like I grew up in a time where my father would put documents in front of my mother and tell her to sign them. And there was not even a, a, a expectation that she would read them before signing them. Right. You know, that was just the norm is that you trusted your husband with X, Y, Z. Um, and so everything that Free From does is to transform the way that our society is looking at and addressing this issue and to understand it as an economic problem. With economic causes and economic consequences. And, you know, in, in the U.S., if you are a victim of gender-based violence, Support is really only offered at a moment of acute crisis, and it is short-lived. So we have shelters, we have temporary restraining orders, we have access to public assistance and other temporary measures. But what we know is that gender-based violence, not only is it systemic and pervasive in our society, so to treat it like you would to, to, to address it like you would, uh, you know, humanitarian crisis is flawed. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it impacts generations. It, it is a cycle that impacts generations. So in addition to, to making sure that we're addressing it as an economic problem, Free From is also working to expand the continuum of support for survivors so that support is available long before a moment of acute crisis, and hopefully you never get to that moment of acute crisis, and long after. And that can look like everything from our banks and financial institutions providing support so that um, financial abuse doesn't occur through your bank account. And it looks like everything from children in school and college learning about financial freedom and learning about how to protect their economic um, uh, independence. Now, you all you also uh, talk about the power that employers have mm-hmm. to change the culture and support this work. Um, yeah. What, is, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, so I, I talked about this being a systemic issue. And to me, if it's a systemic problem, it means that our society is responsible for perpetuating it. And only a full societal response can address it. And our employers are a pillar of our society. And they hold tremendous power. I should say we hold, I am an employer. We hold tremendous power. And just like we will not address racism as a society unless our employers are also thinking about their role in either perpetuating or dismantling racism, the same is true of gender-based violence. One in three women, one in two trans folks, you are employing at least one survivor if you have three employees, you know? Right, right, right. And we know that 60% of survivors lose their job as a result of the harm that they experience or the harm that they are subjected to. And so what that tells us is it's not that survivors need job training. 
it's actually that employers need to understand how to support survivors so that they don't lose their jobs. And um, what that can look like is everything from paid and protected leave that uh, focuses on gender-based violence. So we have been able to get um, a number of big employers to adopt a paid and protected leave policy for survivors so that in a moment, uh, or if you are subjected to gender-based violence, you can take this leave without having to deplete sick and vacation days that you may or may not have. Amazing. Um, Facebook has adopted it. Bumble has adopted it. The city of Chicago has adopted it. Berkshire Bank, others have adopted it. So we want to normalize this as a type of leave. And the idea is to me, it's pretty simple. Like if you have to go and do a rape kit or you have to go to court to get a restraining order, you are neither sick nor you are on vacation. Right. What you are actually doing is you are having to bear the brunt of a problem that our society created. And therefore, it should be addressed differently. There should be a, a leave available to you that acknowledges that you may at some point in your life be subjected to this type of harm. And it is our responsibility as a society, not your individual responsibility as a survivor, to support you in that moment. So the burden does this. not fall on you. Yeah. Let me ask you this though. So I, I think that that's amazing and it and it makes sense. You know, and this this podcast is is about stereotypes. And and when you say that, it makes me wonder what stereotypes are associated with survivors and you know how likely is it that a survivor is gonna wanna admit to their employer that they're going through this. So this is this is such a good question because we very much have stereotypes around this issue. I think the stereotype, the stereotypical survivor, short of the fact that Halle Berry and Jennifer Lopez are always the two actresses that have to play survivors in films, but the stereotypical survivor is typically a heterosexual cisgender woman who has children who is you know physically attacked has a black eye pushed down the stairs left for dead and grabs the keys grabs the kids and runs to a local shelter yeah. and that is what we think of when we think of this issue and the problem is that there are as many different stories of what a survivor looks like as there are survivors and because we have this one idea what it does to us is it says that anything is anything that is not that is not gender-based violence. And that makes us do that with our own experience and it makes us do that with other people around us as they are experiencing that. Oh, well, she's not allowed to leave the house after seven o'clock, but he doesn't hit her. Or, oh, well, yeah, no, I'm, I don't have access to my own money and my partner gives me an allowance every week and they they keep my bank account safe and 
you know, they uh, convinced me to quit my job because they were going to take care of me. And, you know, yeah, well, we took out the debt in my name because, um, you know, they don't have as good a credit score as me. And all this that starts to add up to economic abuse and control. Well, but they don't hit me. Mm -hmm. And so because we don't have a wide enough understand, a broad enough and diverse enough understanding of the problem, uh, we're not able to come up with solutions that actually address the full scope and scale of the problem. Because in our mind, we're always just thinking about that person. And so as we work with employers to adopt leave like this, it also comes with a lot of education around it. And there will always be people that don't feel comfortable going to their employer and saying X, Y, Z. But what we have found is that when an employer adopts a policy like this and signals that they are understanding their responsibility as employers, that it uh, but it does actually create space for someone to say, hey, I'm going through a thing. And the hardest thing as an employer, and I say this running two companies and having had people at both companies, because we obviously we obviously have the same policy. I've had people at both companies tell me that they need to take this leave. The hardest mm -hmm. thing as the employer is just saying okay and not asking questions. Right. And really respecting that boundary and respecting that if someone wants to come and tell me the details, they will. But I'm so glad that they, you know, they they took the leave, they have the leave. And I have to hold all my questions and concerns and, and, and everything that I have around right? and all of it. I have to hold that as the employer. That is not for them to to answer for or take care of or put me at ease about. So, okay, so you've done so much. I mean, you only graduated from law school 10 years ago. <laughs> and <laughs> so, which still makes you like a baby lawyer, even though you're not <laughs> practicing. Um, but but you've been you've done so much in, in this short time, um, even though clearly you started young. Um <laughs> How do you, how do you, and, and you're dealing with such heavy, heavy lifting, such heavy stuff. Um, what, how do you keep yourself balanced? What do you do for fun? You know, how do you, how do you deal with all this? You know, when I was in law school, I, uh, I did a like a semester internship with the DA's office in Oakland, working in the domestic violence unit. And I, I think that was like the hardest work I've ever done. And I remember coming home from my internship every day and being like, I need a glass of wine. You know, like it was, I didn't know any other way to just like metabolize what I had just witnessed and experienced at work. And I remember in that moment being like, oh, this is like, this is how lawyers become alcoholics. You know, like this is, and I, and I literally, I wasn't even drinking the wine, but I still was like, oh, this is how lawyers become alcoholics. And I, 
I worked also, I worked at a nonprofit and I, and I had the same experience because it was crisis work. Mm-hmm. And what free from does is I, I don't know another way to say it, except we do abundance work. And I think where the burnout comes is when you are working in an issue that you know isn't going to get any better. Yeah. You know, you're working, you're, you're working in a shelter, you're working with someone and you know that person is going to be back here in six months because where else are they going to get? They're going to, they've got nowhere to go but go back. Mm-hmm. And so you're just sort of waiting for the next time you see them again. Or something like the DA's office where you're really only dealing with a situation when it is too late. At Free From, what we're focused on is solution. Be that passing legislation or somebody says they need cash and we we get to give them that cash. And then whatever the need was that they had, they are able to meet and they're able to keep themselves safe or matching people's savings so that they have a safety net Hmm. to protect their safety. That work is incredibly generative. So the work itself doesn't have any hopelessness to it. Okay. And so so just on a structural level, that that prevents burnout. Now, I'm not going to say I'm not tired sometimes and I don't work really hard and I've had to unlearn um, a lot of, I think, workaholic workaholism that we as lawyers tend to um, have just by the nature of the fact that we pick this profession. Um, but how do I set boundaries? I think my biggest lesson came as an employer, and really, I wanted I wanted my staff to be well, and I wanted my staff to have work-life balance, whatever that looks like for them. And I knew that it didn't matter what I said, it mattered what I did. And that, you know, if I said, yeah, no, don't work weekends, don't work evenings, but they they knew I was working my evenings and weekends, that they were just going to, they were just going to follow that. Um, And so that really was the turning point for me to start to take better care of myself and create more balance in my life. And, and also it could only go so far. And then my daughter being born. Yeah. Was really like the next phase, the next level of that, of actually when I want as much time with her as I can have. And when I'm with her, I want to be present with her. And so that requires me to really create boundaries between my work life and my personal life that I didn't really need to have before. Like I could be fluid. I could be thinking about work when I was making dinner, you know, but right. now I want to know how exciting the peanut butter that's in her hand is, you know, like <laughs> that's where I want to be in this moment. And so uh, it, it has uh, structurally created so much more balance for me than, than I had even a year ago. So we don't have that much more time. And I could, I could, there's so many other questions I have for you. I, I, I told you uh, earlier that I downloaded the app, the, the uh, uh-huh. Chatty app, uh, which uh-huh. is you and your wife's company based in astrology. And I, I can't wait to use it. And, you know, I would imagine that's a source of, of fun. And I know Chani gives 5%. 
mm-hmm. of, of its profits to free from. So that's amazing. I would imagine that's a, a source of, of uplifting and, and fun. You know, I, I want you to use these last few minutes to talk about really, if you want to talk about Chani, let's talk about that. If you want to, but I, I'd like for you to, to give some advice to, mm. to people who, whatever advice you want to give, if it's, you know, to people who are experiencing uh, physical, you know, a lack of physical safety, if it's to people who are trying to decide what they should do with their life, their career, their legal, you know, just, just talk to me for just, you know, the, these last couple of minutes. And, and, and it's, and this has already been inspirational, but this, this is a platform for you to, to say whatever it is you want to say. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just want to correct one thing only because I think it's important. So the Chani app doesn't give 5% of profits. It gives 5% of revenue. Okay. And why I think that's important. Yeah, it's a really big difference. When you whittle down the profits, it can be pennies, but revenue is is substantial. And and I really want to encourage more employers to, to give from the revenue line, not from the profits line. Uh, or more corporations. Um, but since you brought up the Chani app, I am in fact the CEO of the Chani uh, company. I'm the CEO of FreeFrom. And so I run two companies. And the Chani team is 37 people and the FreeFrom team is 26 people. And my, uh, you know, what I used to hear so much from, from folks was, oh, you, you can't do both. And even within free from, well, I mean, you seem to be doing a lot. I feel like you should just pick one thing and get really good at it. And I used to feel like, you know, I, I want to do both and I care about both. And I think I can do, like, I'm good at both, but everyone keeps telling me, I, I, you know, basically I can't have it all. And I will say now that I have a daughter, I know <laughs> what I didn't know before, which is anyone for every child that someone has, that's an extra job. Yep. So you got three kids, they got three jobs plus the job. More than one job. Yeah. Having a child is more than one extra job. Right. Yeah. Someone said to me that apparently breastfeeding is like uh, the same as having an extra full time job. So, yes. Right now I have three jobs, four jobs, something like that. But I watched this documentary, The Biggest Little Farm. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. And it's about regenerative farming. And they go into the history of agriculture in this country and how monocropping came to be. Monocropping, i.e. only planting one crop, was really a a cash grab um, in the agricultural industry and a a capitalist way of farming um, in the U.S. And... uh, destroyed the earth destroyed the soil mm-hmm. just created uh, so much lost crop and what farmers are now moving to not now but what farmers have moved to is understanding that regenerative farming requires planting a diversity of crops and you know when the pandemic came free from not only survived as a nonprofit but thrived as a nonprofit 
precisely because we had a diversity of things that we did. And so if one thing suddenly was impacted by the pandemic, something else wasn't and something else could actually move quicker because of the pandemic. And so as an ecosystem, we were able to thrive. And it was really when I watched that documentary that I was like, oh, all those people that said to me, you're doing too much, were basically operating from a, a, a scarcity mindset. Yeah that says you must pour your energy into one thing and become really good at it, but that is not how we thrive. And so as a long, long winded way of saying, my advice is whatever you're passionate about, do it and take care of yourself while you're doing it, but don't let anyone limit you. No, if even if you're a third year associate and you've got this desire to start a business, start the business. And you'll figure out how to make it work, but but um but but live your life from that place of abundance and give yourself the freedom to live out all of the potential that you have. And I know that being the bot, being the CEO at Chani makes me a better CEO at Freeform and vice versa. And being a mom now makes me better at all of it and yes. vice versa. And so I, don't deprive yourself in that way. And, you know, I, so that so resonates with me because, you know, here I am a, a recovering lawyer, a, a recruiter, a legal recruiter who specializes in diversity and has a podcast. And mm-hmm. I don't think I could survive if I didn't do it all. Yeah, you know, the, the exactly. idea Same. of just doing one thing and, you know, am I the best, you know, at any of them? No. But does it keep me sane to do all of it and make me happy and fulfilled? Yes. So here, here to that and, and abundance mm-hmm. and, you know, living from abundance and not lack is something that we all need to learn for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So, Sonia, thank you so much. Thank you for being here to BS with me today. And thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, be- before we end, please tell us, you know, give us, tell us how people can find Free From, how they can find mm-hmm. Ch- uh, Chani. Yeah, so... Free From, our website is freefrom.org, and you can find everything there. Chani, C-H-A-N-I, you can download the app. It's an astrology app. You can download it both on Apple and Android uh, devices, and the website is chani.com. Awesome. And again, thank you so much for being here to BS with me today, and thanks to everyone for listening. Until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. It is. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.